It is good to be with you this evening. Uh, Derek said 40 minutes from now, some of you will know more about why he is the way he is than you, ha- than you have before. I do want to begin tonight by thanking this congregation for uh, being so good to him and to his family. Uh, they have been here uh, on and off for the last several years. We're in Peru for a little while, but uh, uh, this congregation really has meant a lot to them, and I, I sincerely appreciate that. Lots of ties I have here. Uh, I guess Jim and Vicki Murphy would get the prize for the ones that I've known the longest. Uh, uh, Jim and I worked together for, for many years, and uh, uh, several in this congregation I had as, as students through the years. But it is good to be with you this evening. Uh, second thing I'd like to do is give you greetings from Fred Hardeman. Uh, uh, David Shannon's our new president. Doug told me, and in fact David had yesterday, that he's going to be here in a, in a few weeks. Uh, this is, I guess, the fifth president at Fried Hardeman I've known, the fourth one that I've worked with. And uh, you never know in a congregation of the church or a school or even a family uh, about faithfulness long term. Uh, one generation at a time is about all you can hope for. But uh, uh, because of David and several others about his age, I feel very good about the school for, uh, for another generation. Our topic is, has been announced as a Christian's view of money and possessions. I want to show you uh, three or four pictures to begin with. Uh, you've got your toys, and uh, I have my toys. We all have things we get attached to here. This picture is not real clear, but it's uh, uh, a two-room log house that I'm in the process of restoring. That was Derek's great-great-grandfather's house. Uh, we live on a farm on the east side of Natchez Stray State Park in Tennessee, and our family's been there a long time. And uh, it's real easy in something like this, and I'm sure each of you uh, has a family story, and some of you may have prized possessions, that we can let ourselves get very, very attached to. Uh, this is the house Derek grew up in, a little bit different than uh, the log house. Um, Milo and Fenner have been up with us the last few days, and uh, um, I am a uh, teacher by profession, but uh, uh, kept timber for exercise and fun, but uh, that's a Tennessee grandson, and uh, Milo and Fenner got the privilege of washing a log truck last week. But I I give you all those pictures just to try to get you to create a context for yourself of the things that you possess. Your pictures would look different than mine, but we've all got our pictures. We've all got things that we uh, wouldn't want to lose, things that uh, may mean uh, varying degrees of importance to us and things that we uh, may get sometimes more attached to than we ought. Uh, I want to cover a lot of ground tonight and uh, try to be mindful of the, of the time and get us out on time. But there, I've spoken several places through the years on uh, a topic similar to this and have had elderships tell me after the fact that uh, they actually got cri- criticized because of uh, the topic. To my knowledge, that hadn't happened after the fact. But the criticism was, well, the church, we need to talk about spiritual things and uh, not secular things. And money is really not a, a biblical topic. And uh, stuff or possessions really isn't. Uh, by the time we get through tonight, I hope that uh, at least we have succeeded in learning that that's not the case. I think all of you knew that to start with. The Lord in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 
says, where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. That's the danger of us getting too attached to farms, to houses, to fishing boats, to golf clubs, to whatever our prized possession are. We need to understand that all this stuff is useful here and now in this life, but it's only temporary. I don't know when the Lord's going to come back, but in whatever generation is alive when he comes back, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 teaches very plainly all this stuff's going to pass away. It's all going to be burned up. So none of our stuff, none of our possessions, none of our bank accounts. Yeah. I do, as Derek said, teach finance and have for many years. I do a financial statement on our family on a regular basis. And if you do that, it tends to help you get out of debt. It tends to help you uh, uh, manage money considerably better than never looking at it. But at some point, none of that's going to matter anymore. Something human experience in the Bible both clearly teaches is that we can't take it with us. Solomon reflected in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, as we come, as he had come from his mother's womb, so will we return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hands. Same concept in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 7. We brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Money and physical possessions are as morally neutral as this podium is. There's nothing good about money. There's nothing bad about money. There's nothing good about a set of golf clubs or a log truck or a chainsaw. There's nothing bad about it. The problem or the complication comes with our attitude. I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about this passage in Luke chapter 18. I think you're probably very familiar with it to begin with. In my opinion, it's one of the, the saddest uh, accounts in the New Testament. I think it's the only case where a person with good intentions came to the Lord and felt worse when he left than he did when he got there. Uh, in fact, if you read, this is recorded in three of the gospel accounts. Mark's account says Jesus loved the young man. Uh, he, was a, he was a fine young man. He'd grown up a faithful Jew. It ruined his day, though, basically, having this conversation with the Lord. Because he realized something about himself when he went home that my guess is he'd never thought about before. That is, he realized how important his stuff was to him. If I read this passage correctly, and I have uh, studied it a lot through the years, right in the middle of that where Jesus said, uh, follow me, Jesus was not inviting this young man, I don't think, to become one of his apostles. But I think he was literally giving him a personal invitation. You come, you come travel with us. Got to do something first, though. All this stuff, sell it, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. He went home feeling sad because he realized my stuff is more important to me than this invitation that the Lord has just given to me. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, I think, basically defines love of money as a character defect. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5, if money itself becomes the goal, we're never going to have enough of it. 
He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. First Timothy chapter 6, Paul gives a warning. Those that want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires will plunge men into ruin and destruction. Money's not, but the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, which some, by wandering for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. I want to take just a minute and throw in a, a few statistics. Dropped just a little bit last year, but over the last five years, uh, they've averaged just about exactly a million bankruptcy filings, personal bankruptcy filings in the United States. The opposite end of that spectrum, one out of every 125 people in this country now is a millionaire. And this third point, uh, things have changed quite a bit in my lifetime. There used to be a few very poor people, a few very rich people, and you had a, just a typical bell curve where a majority of the public was in the middle. The middle is thinning out, and people are going to, to both extremes. We don't have time this evening to talk about the reasons for that, but it is true that uh, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And the middle class, they used to bear the load, is basically going one direction or the other. Both the Federal Reserve System and the U.S. Commerce Department, in one year since 2005, <clears throat> say this was not true, but in every other year since 2005, the American population as a whole has spent more than 100% of income. What that, that really means is we're borrowing money and our debt load's going up faster than savings rate. Americans have the lowest per capita savings rate of any developed country in the world. We have the highest per capita debt load of any country in the world. Lots of studies have been done in behavioral sciences, in finance, and in other disciplines, and it has been found consistently that finance is the single most common cause of stress in American families. That's just as true for families in their 50s as for young married couples in their 20s. Second point's even more surprising. It's just as true for families that make more than $250,000 a year as it is for families that make $25,000 a year. The problems are the same, the numbers are just bigger. There are three primary aspects of a person's life that are harmed by the negative effects of financial stress. Uh, there are five common causes of stress in marriage, and almost all of the studies list stress related to finances as the number one cause. The American Medical Association ranks preventable premature death and disability is being primarily caused by stress. And a big part of that stress also comes from financial issues. This third point, people that uh, don't manage their finances well at home tend not to make as good employees. Uh, if they work in physical labor, they're more likely to get hurt. In any other kind of job, they're more likely to quit a job and accept another job for a small raise. They are more distracted. They miss work more. 
it affects a lot of things in life. Even within the church, and I have done not a tremendous amount, but quite a bit of research through the years myself and know others who have as well. And one of the things, this first bullet point, uh, has always bothered me. I have surveyed lots of Christian parents and find that they very, very rarely feel guilty about the little time they spend with their children as they grow up. What they feel guilty about is the stuff that they can't give their children. And that stays that way until something goes wrong with the kids. When uh, you've got a 15-year-old, uh, a set of 15-year-olds that are about to become parents or that develop a drug problem or they kill somebody in a drunk driving accident and all of a sudden the priorities change. But it's sad that it takes something like that to change our priorities. The second bullet point, I've surveyed Again, several congregations of the church myself and no others who have as well. And what I have found through the years, Del Rada may be different. But in most congregations of the church, about 80% of what's given is given by about 20% of the members. And the other 80% just do what they do kind of in token amounts. This may be the most important point for us to think about tonight with respect to the usefulness of money or possessions. Money is a tool to be used and not something just to be collected for collection's sake. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 13, Solomon said, There's a grievous evil which I've seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Now, there certainly is nothing wrong. In fact, we'll talk a little bit later. I think the Bible actually teaches financial planning. Planning for retirement, planning for your children's education, uh, planning for various things is a good thing. But when money itself becomes the objective and seeing how big the stack can get, I think that's what Solomon is talking about. And he says it hurts people. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 18 and 19, Paul tells Timothy to tell those that are rich in this present world to use it. Instruct them to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon says, I know there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor." It is the gift of God. There is some advantage to doing something while we're alive, even rather than leaving assets to our family or to others through a will. You get the pleasure of seeing what happened. If somebody doesn't manage it quite like you wish they did, you've still got time to change on what you do with the rest of what you have. But use it, Solomon's saying, to do good during one's lifetime. Proverbs chapter 3, sometimes people equate money with power, and I make you squirm a little bit just because I can't. The proverb writer says, don't do that. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it. 
Something else the Bible clearly teaches is that money is not an appropriate standard for us to either judge ourselves or to judge other people. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, Paul writes, Instruct those that are rich in this present world not to be conceited. If I've got more money than you are, that doesn't make me better than you because I have more money than you are. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 2, The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is maker of them all. Proverbs 13, 7, even if it wasn't wrong, you can't do it. I can show you lots of people that have all the trappings of wealth. In fact, one of my favorite stories I use in class, a professional athlete with a published net worth of over $300 million. And the last uh, athletic event he participated in uh, earned a little over $6 million dollars got to keep two. The other four went to a, a bankruptcy judge because the whole $300 million was gone. There are a lot of people that make a lot of money that pretend to be rich and have nothing. There are a lot of other folks that make just very moderate uh, incomes, manage it well, and you can't tell by looking. There's one that pretends to be rich but has nothing, and another pretends to be poor but has great wealth. I said a while ago that our current generation owes more per capita, that is per person, than any other nation in the world. The Bible certainly does not teach that it's a sin to borrow money, but I want to take just a minute and talk about this because it does place a negative uh, connotation toward debt. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. In a very real sense, that's true. If you sign a uh, loan contract obligating yourself to make a $1,600 a month payment for the next 30 years, then the amount of time it takes you to earn that for that 30 years literally belongs to someone else. Psalm 37, 21. The wicked borrows and does not pay back. If we borrow money, there is a moral and a legal obligation to pay it back. Deuteronomy 28 is my favorite passage, I guess, related to debt. If you're familiar with Deuteronomy 28, it's often referred to as Moses' benedictory address. Uh, one of the last major speeches before we went up on the mountain and the Lord let him look into the promised land. It's divided into a blessing section and a curses section. And it's interesting to me that in both sections, he talks about borrowing money. Verse 12 is in the blessing section. If you obey God, do what he says, here's what's going to happen. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season, to bless all the work of your hand, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Verses 43 and 44, same chapter but it's in the curses section. If you don't obey God, then you better watch out because here's what's coming. Among those, the alien who's among you shall rise above you higher and higher, but you shall go down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. So in Deuteronomy 28, Moses pictures the ability to be a lender as a blessing and having to be a borrower 
as a curse. The Bible certainly teaches that it's right for a person to enjoy riches, and that we ought to recognize if we have it, it came as a blessing from God. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that all his labor is good. This also I've seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, basically the same point. If we have riches and wealth, it's because God blessed us with it, gave it to us, and holds us responsible for how we use it. I'm touching on several different points because this is not a real common study for most of us to do, and I think it's important just to, to plant some thoughts. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I've got the heading on this slide, Handling Financial Responsibility. Paul, as he traveled around on his missionary journeys, not only preached, but he was also raising money to uh, carry back to Judea, the area around Jerusalem, to help the poor Christians there. And if I understand this passage correctly, and I've, I've studied this one a lot as well, I literally think Paul is saying, I never travel with other people's money by myself. There's somebody that's going to be going with me. They're going to know how much we're left with. They're going to know that we got there with all of it. If you read the whole context of this, I think that's exactly his point. And he makes a point right in the middle of this, saying, taking precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what's honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Various ones of us from, from time to time do handle other people's money. And once somebody has the opportunity to wonder if we're being honest with it or not, you're in a situation where it's virtually impossible to ever prove your innocence. I think Paul's advice here is, is very good advice. <clears throat> Another point the Bible clearly teaches is that it's right for us to provide for ourselves and for our family. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. About as strong a negative statement as is said about any group. If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 12, 14, I don't think is teaching that it's wrong for children to help parents, but normally that's not the way it works. Uh, children are not responsible to save up for the parents, but parents for children. But 1 Timothy 5 is explaining the responsibility that the church has to widows who are widows indeed, but it explains in that context if they've got children or grandchildren, then the family has a responsibility before the church does. So even children happen to take care of aged parents, the Bible clearly teaches. I don't think the Bible makes any attempt to make an all-inclusive list of things that are more important than money. But I've always found it interesting 
that there are several of those that are listed. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. The proof of, proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable. Proverbs 22, 1. A good name is more desirable than great riches. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 22. Honesty. It's better to be a poor man than a liar. Uh, integrity. Proverbs 28, verse 6. The Bible doesn't reverse Proverbs 31, but hopefully a good husband is worth a little something. But at least an excellent wife is worth far more than jewels. Proverbs 17, peace and quiet at home. Proverbs chapter 3, wisdom. Proverbs chapter 8, the ability to be taught. I think Proverbs chapter 11 saying, don't bother to bring your checkbook to judgment day. It's not going to do any good, but righteousness will deliver from death. Money is a tool that can help do good, but there are a lot of things it won't do for us. And something else the Bible clearly teaches is that riches are not dependable. Uh, Proverbs eleven twenty eight: He who trusts in riches will fall. First Timothy six seventeen: Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. You're familiar with the story in Luke twelve of the of the rich farmer that thought he had himself taken care of for a long time to come. God calls him a fool. Don't know who got his stuff, but we know it didn't do him any good. Matthew chapter 6. Metal rusts. Termites get in wood. Thieves steal. Uh, Any physical prized possession that we have, a tornado, a hurricane, a fire, a thief, something can damage it. Something else, I don't think the Bible makes any attempt to make an all-inclusive list, but I've always found it was pretty interesting uh, that the Bible describes several wrong ways to make money. Proverbs chapter 29, being partnered with a thief. In this context, it's saying you know about it ahead of time, you just don't want anybody. That makes you partner with a thief. Uh, Proverbs chapter 11, there are a lot of these in the Proverbs, uh, false weights and measures. Even today, the state of Tennessee or the state of Alabama sends folks around all over the state. Everywhere there's a set of scales uh, measuring from uh, things you'd weigh vegetables in a uh, grocery store to ones big enough you can drive an 18-wheeler on. Every set of scales, uh, the uh, uh, state keeps testing. Uh, they test gasoline pumps at service stations because you can change the size of the pulley just a little bit. And what looks like the cheapest gas in town can be the most expensive gas in town. People have been crooks like that for a long time. Gang violence is not new to our generation. Proverbs chapter 1 is let's, let's form a gang. Let's uh, talk people over the head, share the wealth, and uh, get rich because of it. Lots of these weights and measures uh, passages. Proverbs 11, deceptive wages. You can trick people and make money off of it, at least for a while. Uh, Proverbs 13, 11, wealth obtained by fraud dwindles. You can make money by lying. Proverbs 21, 6, the getting of treasure by a lying tongue is fleeting vapor. James chapter 5, People work for you, you cheat them, 
Don't pay them what you'd agreed on, and you get their money. Proverbs 10, 2, ill-gotten gains do not profit. Proverbs 15, 27 talks about bribery. Uh, and finally, Exodus chapter 20, one of the Ten Commandments is wrong to steal. April 15th is probably no one in this room's favorite day unless it happens to be your birthday or anniversary one. But the Bible does teach it's right to pay taxes. Matthew chapter 22, people with less than the best of motives ask Jesus whether they ought to pay taxes or not. He understands their motives, but still answers the question and doesn't give them a straight yes or no, but by the illustration, Caesar's inscriptions on the coin, so render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In Matthew 17, Jesus literally paid taxes. And I've never had this happen. You probably haven't either. It was tax time. He sent Peter fishing, and Peter caught a fish with enough money in his mouth to pay Peter's tax and the Lord's tax both. The most general passage related to that is Romans chapter 13. Uh, rendered all what's due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. The Bible does teach the concept of financial planning. James chapter 4 teaches that those plans ought to always be conditional on the Lord's will. Uh, nothing wrong with making plans to go to another country or another city or put together a business plan for something you want to do and expect to make a profit off of it. But we do know that life is uncertain and our plans need to always be conditional on the Lord's will. Luke chapter 14 is a specific example of someone who failed to plan. Somebody starts to build a tower. They didn't do a very good job figuring out what it was going to cost. They ran out of money, didn't finish it. People went by and mocked them. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on giving because that's probably the one thing all of us have heard sermons our whole life related to. But the Bible certainly does teach giving. I'll touch just real quickly on a, a few things. And this one needs a disclaimer on it, I think. Uh, giving in order to get, I think certainly is not an appropriate motive. And I don't have any idea how the Lord does what He does. But the Bible clearly teaches that God is able to reward the generous and to withhold from the stingy. Proverbs chapter 3 Honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of all your produce, so or in order that your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats will overflow with new wine. There are a lot of passages that teach that uh, giving will benefit the giver. Uh, Proverbs eleven twenty four: the generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. The Bible also teaches that uh, giving ought to be done voluntarily. It's not a church tax, uh, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. The Bible teaches that we ought to give on a regular basis and ought to give gener generously. Two of the Christian graces in Romans chapter 12 have to do with giving with liberality and contributing to the needs of the saints. This may be the one I've talked to people in their 70s 
that have told me they established a giving habit when they were 16 years old and they stuck with it. And literally, at 70, they were given the same amount they were given at 16. They may be making hundreds of times more than they did at 16, but too few of us, I'm afraid, uh, do really recognize that if we have money, it's because God blessed us and that God does uh, reward the generous and he expects us to give as we, as we prosper. I don't know people personally who have a problem with this, but the Bible certainly teaches we ought not give for personal glorification. One point just to touch on, if you had been a good Jew living under the law of Moses, tithing was prescribed. Very simple. You give a tenth of all you, you receive. Deuteronomy 14, 22. For some reason, the Lord chose not to do that in the New Testament uh, for Christians. Uh, tithing, Matthew 23, uh, it's one of those things the Pharisees were actually doing a pretty good job of. Uh, things they could check off like circumcision or count like tithing, they did pretty good. Things that were attitudinal like mercy and justice, they didn't do so good. But for some reason in the church, the Lord chose to lay out this set of principles and leave it up to us to apply them rather than saying you give a tenth. David is a speaker in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. In that passage, he refers to himself and the other Israelites as tenants. That is, what we're giving for Solomon to be able to construct the temple really belonged to you to begin with, the Lord. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, it is a blessing of the Lord that makes rich and he has no sorrow to it. In 1 Corinthians 10, 26, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. The Bible teaches that Christians ought to be good workers, ought to have a good work ethic. Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for man, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of inheritance it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. This third passage is my favorite lazy passage. Uh, Proverbs 19. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish when I didn't even bring it back to his mouth. That's pretty lazy. You got food sitting on the table in front of you and you're too lazy to feed yourself. Not politically correct, but probably would still work. Second Thessalonians 3.10. If somebody won't work, then neither let them eat. It's not a bad thing to grow up without a silver spoon in your mouth. A worker's appetite works for him. His hunger urges him on. The Bible says we ought to be careful or beware of friends that show up when the money shows up. Uh, Proverbs 19.4, wealth has many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. Many will entreat the favor of a generous man, and every man is a, him, a friend to him who gives gifts. Contentment. It's something many of us are not real good at. Uh, our contentment ought not depend on what we possess. Ecclesiastes 4, your stereotypical workaholic. There's a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son or a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with the riches, and he never asked, for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 6, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. 
the standard Paul describes in 1 Timothy 6 8 is really pretty, pretty low. If we make a le- list of our needs and wants, uh, list of needs probably ought to be a pretty short list. If you've got plenty to eat and protected from the elements, probably everything else really is a, a want rather than a need. This is my favorite passage on that topic. Uh, it's a prayer in Proverbs chapter 30. Lord, let me end up somewhere in the middle. Uh, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. The Bible does promise that God will take care of us if we keep our priorities in the right order. Psalm 37 is a psalm of David. David says, I I used to be young, but I'm not anymore. And there's something I've never seen. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or God's descendants begging bread. Probably everybody in here could quote Matthew 6.33. Proverbs 10 just makes a blanket statement. The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger. 1 Corinthians 10.13 certainly can apply in a lot of other situations as well. But a lot of temptations are financial. And there's always going to be a way out of it if we'll look for it. Now, real quickly, just a few other things. Uh, the Bible, in my judgment, and I know some good people that disagree with me on this, but if you've got a disagreement within the church, I think this passage is teaching, and I, I think the Apostle Paul would agree with me if he was here. It's just not the appropriate thing to go hire a lawyer and go to court in public and uh, sue your fellow brother. There's a better way to settle it. You either get somebody in the church to mediate it for you, or you just accept the loss and go on. Uh, either of those is better. The uh, Bible has a lot to say about uh, uh, marriage. There's not a single passage that says, here's how to manage money in a marriage. I'm not a counselor, don't have any desire to be, but I have several friends who are who send folks to me. And uh, Proverbs 31, uh, the woman that's described there as the virtuous woman, had the good sense to buy a field, decide how to use it, and her husband sitting in the gates of the city fine with that. I will leave this set of slides with Derek if any of you happen to want a copy of it. Same thing related to uh, teaching financial responsibility to children. I want to end just looking at a couple of things with this. We as a culture are not doing a very good job right now. Uh, This book on that slide, The Millionaire Next Door, if you have time sometime, I think you'd enjoy reading. But it says adult children who are given more dollars accumulate less than those that are given fewer. That's not really arguing against passing wealth on from one generation to the next, but it's saying parents that constantly bail out their children end up basically ruining their children. Here's some kind of troubling statistics. 59% of parents, this is current statistic in the United States, 59% of parents financially support adult children between the ages of 18 and 39 who are not in college. 46% of those are helped with living expenses. 41% with transportation costs, 29% with spending money. Imagine a healthy, normal 35-year-old that's being given spending money by their parents. There's a lot of that going on in the United States right now. 26% of adult parents have taken on more debt because of doing that for their children. Final slide. 
I've taught uh, personal finance, as Derek said, for 42 years. And this is basically a point that I try to convince every class I have of. I believe it to be true that how a person manages money is going to make more difference in their financial position than the size of their paycheck. God expects us to use what he's given us and expects it to be a benefit and not a snare and a temptation for us. Thank you very much for your attention.